Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, Anna Chizinski, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy. My fact is that the first ever ball pit was inspired by a jar of pickled onions. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Amazing. It was a guy who had a massive jar of pickled onions and his son fell into it one day. And while they were fishing him out, they noticed, oh, he's having a great time. So, um, no, it's not that. It's a guy called Eric McMillan who invented it. It was called a ball crawl back in the good old days. And he... He was the subject of a Guardian long read recently. You know, they do these great long essays. And it's all about playgrounds and how playgrounds were developed and, you know, the original playgrounds and who first thought of doing all this weird stuff for children to play in because, you know, had to be invented. And he was this kind of visionary who invented all these different methods of playing. And one of the things he was working on was a place called SeaWorld's Captain Kids in San Diego in 1976. And he and his colleague were looking at a jar of pickled onions and they thought... I think that could work. But he, so he's seen as the father of soft play because this wasn't yep. the only thing that he created. Soft play, um, I go to a lot these days with my son, and they're amazing gymnasiums of, of balls and and uh, <laughs> big. Um, we are allowed to those gymnasiums. <laughs> seen those in Soho. I don't know if you should be taking your son. <laughs> Uh, he, yeah, he invented so many things. So, you know, if you go into, if you see kids playing in a sort of big soft play bit, there's the hanging boxing bags. Wait, so, sorry. Are, you are they about the things that you punch, like punch, punch bags. bags? Exactly. Are you, are you taking your son to a gym? <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> it. Or to a boxing ring. You know. He looks like a mutant now, doesn't he? <laughs> He's so buff. Yeah. It's so weird. You bought a bike for his birthday, didn't you? But he can't get anywhere on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you spend a lot of time in soft play. Like, do soft play areas have punching bags for children? No, they're hanging and yeah. you've got to go through them. You oh, navigate through them. Like a forest of punching exactly bags. Exactly, yeah, a forest yeah. of punching bags. Yeah. It, they recreate the natural world, don't they? <laughs> Onions on the floor and <laughs> punching bags in the air. Apparently the balls were originally used for trapping pollutants inside smokestacks. Hmm, which I can't right? quite picture, but I guess if you had a layer of balls in a, in a chimney, then they would, you know, the smoke would kind of filter through and cling to the balls on its way upwards, and so it would take some of the pollutants out. What, the balls that they use in kids' ball pits now I mean, originally... I think they originally sourced... Yeah, those were the people making those plastic balls at the time. I don't really? think they invented the plastic ball. That's amazing. That's Got interesting. Yeah. Um, and this guy, he, um, he came up with the idea of having soft play because he grew up without the soft play, right? Uh, he grew up in North Manchester in the shadow of Strangeways Prison and used to play in bombed out buildings and over like burnt out cars and stuff like that. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. Although bombed out buildings were the inspiration for the best playgrounds in the world. So the mm. adventure playground, the origin was the bombed out buildings of World War Two in London. Really? And kids used to play on them a lot and people, they were hanging about all over the place and people went, well, we should turn these into something a bit less depressing. And so then they turn them into adventure playgrounds. And then adventure playgrounds today are more like places where they're like scrapyards, right? 
Is that right? Well, no, you can kind really of build nice. things. There's no. running machines. There's, um... <laughs> so there's a difference between like the soft play version and a more hard play version, especially in America. And you get these adventure playgrounds that have got like loose tires, blocks of wood, ropes, hammers, nails. Right. Um, yeah. I read one place that they can even set fire to things, the kids. Wow. And I've never seen one of these. I've never seen them either, but apparently they're more safe than the soft play things. Really? Yeah. And the reason being that as soon as you enter a soft play thing you go straight for the highest tallest thing and climb up it um, because like obviously you think everything's safe but in these more dodgy ones with lots of like rusty nails and stuff like that <laughs> the children kind of build their own play area and they start small and they kill, kind of build up to it or they're just quivering in fear in the corner <laughs> yeah that's I think amazing. I think that's a, a bit of a innovative thing they're doing in America specifically it's in mm. New York isn't it and it's yeah. called The Yard and it's the idea that they want to encourage kids to play with what's around them um, can we just briefly go back to ball pits. Yes, please. Yeah. I, I mostly research ball pits yeah. for this. Fact. Oh, okay, yeah. So um, there have been studies done about the hygiene in ball pits because some people are worried. And there was a spate of stories quite recently. One guy who worked for a firm called Stem Protect, which is a stem cell bank. So I don't know why he's sticking his oar into this field of human endeavour. Anyway, Everyone's got to have a hobby, mate. Yeah, so he was saying that 99.9% of ball fit pits contain uh, levels of vomit and feces, was how it was reported. Because obviously... Yeah, it's absolutely believable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, he the way he put it, it sounded really distressing. He said, uh, he's a parent, and he said, I've watched some of these places with my professional hat on, and what I've learned has truly disturbed me. <laughs> you take your kids to these ball pit play warehouses to have fun, but I've seen kids emerge with their legs covered in poo. And the worst <laughs> thing was, it wasn't even their own poo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had his professional hat on. <laughs> Everyone knows as soon as you put your professional hat on, it's poo spotting out, yeah. <laughs> swabbing the feces. There haven't actually been many studies done of this, but there has been a study in Georgia where they swabbed balls from six different ball pits. And they found out what was in there. And obviously they found loads of bacteria because there are bacteria everywhere. You know, mm. that's the whole point. So there are various ones like meningitis and pneumonia and septicemia and various skin infections. Yeah, so some of the bad ones were there. Oh, some of the bad ones, sure. Some of the ones that you might find in feces, for instance. <laughs> yeah, but fecal bacteria, as we, we've said, haven't we, that they're not necessarily bad. No, bacteria generally, like, you know, probably lots of good guy bacteria in there as well. But even fecal bacteria yeah. are not automatically if going to kill afford, you. If you can't afford some yakult, yeah. just lick a ball from the ball pit. <laughs> <laughs> there was one of the one of the dirtiest ball pits that these guys found had an average of one hundred seventy thousand eight hundred eighteen different bacteria on each ball. Wow. No idea if that's a lot. I know because it sounds like a lot. It, it sounds, sounds like sound. a lot, doesn't it, per ball? But then you, if you would have to lick the whole ball to get it in, like. I don't know about you, but I never licked any of the balls when I was in my ball pit years. <laughs> oh, what you never you lived. Your, what do you yeah. mean your ball pit years? They still have they have adult ball pits. That's true, but I've never I've never gone to one. There's one in London, the ball pit bar in London. Is there? Uh, it started off as a one month only pop up in Dalston in 2016, but it was so popular that they <laughs> opened it full time. It's called Bally Bollison. Uh, and every single ball in this place yeah. is cleaned by a mechanical ball cleaner that can clean 18,000 balls per hour. Wow. Uh, that machine is called the Gobble Muffin. Nice. Okay. <laughs> so they've made, the, <laughs> they've made the branding very mature and adult then. It is a, have you seen how the machines work? 
No, no. It's so no. good. I watched a video of a professional ball cleaning machine, and it's was just, it the gobble muffin? Or? It wasn't. This no. was a slower one, um, okay. I believe. So, it, but it's basically a great big vacuum tube, and you suck up all the balls. And then they get pushed into this sanitizing bath, and then they get shoved into a drying machine, and then they get blasted back out when they're all dry and nice again. It's as you would expect. It cleans the balls. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like it would be fun to get sucked into that machine, doesn't it? Right. It does. It feels like quite a fun ride. If there was a giant ball pit somewhere where you have to go in one of the balls, like a hamster. Exactly. Oh, cool, yeah. That's very why don't cool. they just why don't they just put a sign up saying don't shit in the ball pit? <laughs> <laughs> well not everyone can read. Wilf, can they? Wilf can't read. <laughs> if this is the adult ball pit, oh. I understand the cleaning for kids, but uh. once you're a grown up I don't think that the adults who go to Bali Bollison are shitting in the ball pits. <laughs> well, you don't need to clean the balls. What's up with this newfangled ball machine? <laughs> what you don't try and put the gobble muffin out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I was looking at the history of playgrounds generally, oh, yeah. mm. and actually there was this really cool story a few years ago where the oldest swing in the world <laughs> was found. Cool. And it was just in the bottom of someone's garden. So this was a Wicksteed swing. So the guy who invented the swing was a guy called Charles Wicksteed. It was in Kettering in Northamptonshire, and he made this playground and came up with the swing. And then they were looking for Wicksteed's old playground equipment, and a, fam- a random family who lived nearby said, well, we've got this kind of old-looking swing at the bottom of our garden. Come and take a look. And it was his prototype for all of that, and the kids were still using it. That was really. not the original kids. <laughs> <laughs> they were very old by that point but they were still swinging too old to swing they were shitting again by that same <laughs> how cool is that that the creator of the swing and of the ball pit grew up when were born I guess two hours drive from each other Kettering and Sheffield um, yeah oh, it's just right? quite amazing that that bit of the world Wait, is what? it's uh, about two uh, maybe less than two hours, hours? Yeah, well, I, looked at, I looked at it on Google oh did Maps. you okay, yeah, it's cool. an hour 40 train ride straight up the M1 Okay, I mean, <laughs> I find that astonishing. We know who invented the swing. Well, I don't amazing. think we do because I would have thought cavemen were on swings yeah. and probably dinosaurs. I think he definitely invented the. M- Hang on, <laughs> I'm not even going to get into that. He invented the modern swing. He did. It's always so, the cop out, like the modern Olympics, you know. Yeah. yeah. And also, I'm always, you know, to put on my professional hat, um, <laughs> no, my woke hat, um, it's when we say it's surprising they're two hours apart from each other, it's not because I always think these things are so Western biased and so English speaking country biased. They probably had swings in the Netherlands or sw- they definitely had swings in China probably 7,000 years ago. Yes. Um, um, Darwin made a swing, for instance. Did he? Did he make a ball pit? Precursor. He didn't make the ball pit, but he Another did. Another Englishman, of course. Another Englishman. He what? did erect what? a swing for his kids and it sounds like the coolest house ever so he was a super fun dad and he built himself with the help of a local carpenter he recruited for the purpose a slide instead of stairs so in Darwin's house you went down a slide instead of the stairs and then he How had a rope get up? Yeah. <laughs> you never could so you started upstairs and then you never saw the upstairs again okay. which was a shame because the swing he erected was actually upstairs on the upstairs corridor was it? yeah just to go back to uh, Wicksteed there is a celebrity link to Wicksteed as okay. in a modern um, quite famous person. Oh, you mean a descendant? N- no, 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 no. I mean a modern famous person got their break at Kettering. Uh, is it James Acaster? It's James Acaster. Yeah. He was the only person from Kettering I could think of. Yeah. He makes yeah. a big thing out of being from Kettering and his very first job was at Wicksteed Park. Oh, was it? And they, cool. he's mentioned it because I think he did a TV show, a sort of like spoof mockumentary about his early life. And the manager of the park said... We are proud that he worked here and what he has gone on to achieve, but if he ever wants to come back and help out serving at one of our outlets, he is more than welcome. Look, showbiz is nice. a difficult industry. You never <laughs> know. True. Don't burn your bridges. <laughs> 
I was reading that in Germany, Hitler's bunker, right next to it, where his body was cremated, now sits a slide for children. Oh, there is a children's play area there, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, right over the spot. I think right. they were thinking of getting rid of it because they thought it was kind of inappropriate. It feels a bit reason. weird, yeah. I saw mm. the picture of it. I mean, they don't have a sign up or a plaque, do they? No. On the slide. I think that's fine, Dan. What's fine? I think it's fine that there's a children's play area Oh, there. it just looks a bit eerie when you know what happened on that spot. I mean, don't tell the kids. <laughs> like, what... Dan campaigning with a big board, a sandwich board, public information. This is a Nazi playground. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that bananas are considered such bad luck on fishing boats that many captains ban anyone on board from wearing banana boat sunscreen or clothes made by the company Fruit of the Loom because their logo used to feature a banana. (laughs) You can't have anything that's been near a banana anywhere near a fishing boat. That Uh, is so strange. It's so weird. And if you go on sort of fishermen's blogs and chat forums, (laughs) which I do, do. don't they all say, they all sort of exchange their tips and so a lot of them (laughs) say... how to avoid bananas. How to avoid bananas. A lot of them say, you know, if you see someone with fruit of the loom underwear uh, or fruit of the loom clothes, I think it's a make of clothes, isn't it? Why are you seeing their underwear? On well, the I reckon you would have to check everyone's underwear, wouldn't you? Mm. You do, and then you you cut the labels out at the very least, but maybe you just rip all the clothes off if it's a sexy boat. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, do we know, or, or Anna? Why do you think they weren't allowed bananas on? There are probably more theories about that than anything. But <laughs> <laughs> strong claim. So. <laughs> Could be that I think probably the most likely is that bananas go rotten so fast. So it dates back to the, like the 1700s. They were considered bad luck, and that was a time when the Caribbean was exporting a lot of bananas to continental America. And if you stop to go fishing, then the bananas spoiled. And we should say that the bad luck doesn't mean someone will die usually. It just means that you're not going to catch many fish that day. Mm. And so it was like bananas spoiled. They also let off a really horrible smell when they rotted and they make other fruit rot around them. Mm. Um, But also there's a theory that they float when bodies don't. So if a ship sinks... They think all the sailors have turned into bananas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was a mystery for centuries. (laughs) Anna, can I just pick you up? Bodies do float. Bodies do float. No, the bodies sink at first, don't they? Mm. I'm picturing Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. The movie or... The movie. The movie. Do you remember at the end with all the bananas floating on the surface? (laughs) (laughs) The the door is covered in bananas. Just like, no, I'm sorry, Jack. There's no room for you on the door. (laughs) Oh, but he does sink. Sorry to, to... use that as a he does sink yeah but it, it could be that he resurfaces later anyway <laughs> back up, the, yeah. point, the point is it used to be that when people when boats sank at sea they were mm. carrying lots of bananas because they were going to export them then people would row out to try and save everyone and there'd just be loads of floating mm. bananas mm. and so they attributed the cause of the sinking to them fair enough some more theories it could be that um, you get lots of spiders or snakes or something in your banana shipment mm-hmm. or it could be that crew members were slipping on the banana peels and so obviously that was really bad luck yeah oh wow it's definitely that (laughs) (laughs) so so do we have any more um unlucky things yeah let's see um redheads are supposed to be unlucky um that is people with ginger hair and um they some people say according to one maritime museum um if you meet one before boarding your ship the only way to mitigate the bad luck is to speak to them before they can speak to you 
Wow. Okay. This sounds like a plot by Redheads to get people talking to them. <laughs> I read that whistling is bad luck. Yeah. Uh, and then in the very same list, I read that whistling is good luck. So I'm not sure which one to believe. Hmm. I would say perhaps don't believe anything in that list. <laughs> That's a good thought, yeah. Um, the, but the reason for it being bad luck, supposedly, is that they use whistles as commands to each other. If you couldn't kind of shout, you couldn't really tell them what to do, you might do one whistle for this, two whistles for no. And so if you were just whistling a jaunty sea shanty, mm. then it might confuse people who uh, didn't mm. know whether to put their sails up or sails down. Uh, albatrosses, famously bad luck mm. for sailors. Yes. Uh, although not for Captain Cook. Um, because he was around in the mid-18th century, and they only became bad luck in the end of the 18th century when the Rime of the Ancient Mariner came out. So they weren't bad luck at wow. all before that came out. Ah. And it was all because of that. And actually, they could be good luck. So in 1881, there was a man who fell overboard from his boat, and there was an albatross in the water, <laughs> a dead albatross, and he held onto it, and it kind of floated like a banana. No, <laughs> if you can wow. imagine that, and it <laughs> kept him upright for all that time until someone came and collected him. So albatrosses can be good luck. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> Any banana stuff? Oh yeah. Um, well, I've been, I've been looking at banana shipping. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Um, so I didn't know this, but they have a kind of. Um, policy because obviously they have to be shipped when they're green they cut Mm. off the the tree when they're green and then when they get to the port they're going to they're sent into these special pressurized isolation rooms Mm -hmm. and wait a minute isolation rooms suggest there's only one in each room but that can't be true it's very expensive it's amazing (laughs) they're so cheap when you think about it um sorry yeah they get it they're going to these kind of forced ripening centers and the air is pumped into the boxes of bananas so that they ripen at a consistent rate and also ethylene which is Mm. that chemical they give off they Mm. get fake ethylene too so they get them way more wow. ripe. But it all happens once they've arrived. And there are special banana scientists who control these rooms. And I read a great article uh, on packer.com, which is all about packaging and packing and shipping. And apparently these specialists, they monitor the fruit like a mother hen waiting for it to turn. <laughs> and then when it's ready, they say, right, it's ready for Asda. And they basically are trying to trick the bananas into thinking that they're back in Ecuador or wherever yeah. they've come from. That's amazing. Yeah. And the and rooms are even pressurized to have the same, like, I guess, air pressure as in Ecuador. And sorry, I missed the detail. Is this all happening on the boat or is this once it lands? It's once they've arrived. Right. There are special rooms once they've arrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. And how do they test... The inside pulp. When I've eaten a banana, has it been unpeeled and <laughs> covered a hundred times? A syringe has gone in. You sometimes, you know, sometimes you get a hole in your banana. Of course, just a little yeah. air, an air pocket. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what it is. You can squeeze a banana to feel the ripeness, can't you? Yeah. Well, that's what I do. I imagine what happens is they take one banana, <laughs> test the inside of it, throw that away, and sell all the other ones. That's. You should be in charge of banana importation because that's <laughs> much cleverer. I just had my banana scientist hat on there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that's and so cool. Do you know Maersk, the shipping firm? Yeah. Mm. Biggest shipping firm in the world. Sure. The biggest firm most people have never heard of, you know. But they have 270,000 refrigerated shipping containers, which is, the large, I think, the largest fleet in the world, perhaps. By a long way, Maersk. It's huge, yeah. It's a vast majority So these are, the world. These are refrigerated. They get called reefers. And they, the bananas in there effectively have Wi-Fi because... There, there is data being taken all the time, remote technology, in each of these refrigerated containers. Mm-hmm. And the company is tracking their power status in case one of them stops being refrigerated. Uh-huh. That's a problem. And their temperature and their humidity, and it beams it up to a satellite. Yep. So if there is a malfunction in a shipping container full of bananas in the middle of the ocean, Maersk can find out about it and fix it 
Wow. Before it arrives, and they've done that hundreds of times. I mean, I wouldn't Maybe say that it. that's a banana having Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> They're not surfing the web, are they? <laughs> well, I'm sorry for trying to make it seem a little more interesting than it was. <laughs> cool. So there's a room with a bit of basic technology that most things have now. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that Tim Berners-Lee originally wanted to call the World Wide Web the information mine. Tim, for short. Mm. Yeah. So I learned this fact. In fact, we all learned this fact when we were in Geneva earlier this year, being taken on a tour of CERN by a really great guy called James Gillies, who um, who's a scientist who writes a lot about CERN, who works out there. And that was one of the things he told us while we were out there looking. Um, he said there were a bunch of names that Tim Berners-Lee was actually thinking he should call it. One was Mine of Information. The Information Mine was another one. The Mesh was another one. My, <clears throat> mine of Information would have been moi. As yes. in, so that's also about himself. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And so the reason he didn't go for the Information Mine is because he thought it would be immodest or he just found a better name or what? Yeah, most sites I've read say that it's because it seemed too egotistical. I can't really see any source that says... I thought he said he did a Reddit. Yeah, I didn't see it on Reddit when I read the answer to that. Oh. Yeah, I sort of I sort of read that as someone below commenting on why he said he didn't go for it. Um, but maybe maybe I missed his proper comment on that. So did he, do we know why, why he did um, No, I, I, I personally, I, I couldn't get to the bottom of it. Do we know why he did go with World Wide Web? I guess it's close to mesh, isn't it? Mm. I read that mesh would have been too similar to mess. Yeah. They thought it sounded a bit messy. Which would be quite fitting. Not necessarily in a derogatory way, but it is a huge mess, isn't it? It's a huge mess of crap. The World Wide Web. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should have started with that. But he did do this AMA, which was uh, very revealing of a lot of things. So Mm. there's been rumours for years and years that Error 404 came as a result of there being a room called Room 404 in the office that he was working at. And he said, no, that's absolute nonsense. Not true at all. Uh, He was asked, is there one thing you never thought the internet would be used for, but has become one of the main reasons that people do use it? And his one word answer was kittens. Mm. So he, yeah, he did um, give some quite fun answers in this The kittens thing is weird because, you know, the internet, uh, which is different to the World Wide Web, was almost called the catanet. Was it? Again, how perfect would that have been? been So the catanet was, this was in 1974, and an internet pioneer, Louis Pouzin, wrote this paper where he coined the term catanet. And he said it's going to be a network of networks. And he said, I bet the, the world will adopt this. And he essentially described the internet, said it should be called the catanet. And people used that for the internet up until the 80s. And then they change it to the internet. And we should oh, probably wow. go back to the catanet, given how it's evolved. <laughs> or the pornonet. But it's harder to say. So the web, originally, was not meant to be read-only. So Tim Berners-Lee, when he first built it and made it, he wanted it to be an interactive thing so everyone can edit it. And the only oh. reason it's read-only, so, you know, you've got a website, you can't just make changes to the website. He wanted it to be, oh. he wanted it to be Wikipedia, basically, is what you mean. He but wanted every, so. every site to be Wikipedia, yeah. right? Yeah. But more so than that, you know, like going into a Word document, like everyone's, at Wikipedia, there's a process to go through, I guess. Oh, I see. And, uh, so, so like a Google Doc, basically. Yeah, yeah. A exactly. shared Google Doc. So you might go on to BBC News and you could just change Boris Johnson's name to... 
Trevor McDonald if you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know why that's the first thing that came into my head. <laughs> so weird. So, so many insults you could have come up with. You were lost to the protests on the streets. I, I, was, I was thinking, what's he going to go with? I bet it's going to be really rude. I mean, it's really going to get him. Yeah. I'm just thinking of what's the most confusing thing you could put on there. I know. Why, think... why is Trevor McDonald Prime Minister all of a sudden? That doesn't make any sense. I'm now just thinking, I wonder what Trevor McDonald's up to. I haven't heard from him in years. Well, he's retired. He's pretty elderly now. Yeah, but what's he doing? Where is he? Well, oh, you well, haven't seen him because he's out negotiating with Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so why didn't um, why didn't that obviously insane idea come to fruition? <laughs> it wasn't for any reasons like it being obviously insane. It was just that um, logistically, practically, it was too difficult to get it done. The coding and the organisation of it. Mm. So it was like, oh, sorry, it's easier to make it a read only. Wow. And actually, you could argue that's why the internet's got into all the trouble that it has because it means that all these big companies have power over it whereas we can't all interact actively it could have been such a different thing the worldwide google doc yeah so cool and it's so weird that we're calling it worldwide google doc given that google is obviously one of the things that's benefited from this huge monopoly Mm. that companies have anyway Mm. I was looking into the earliest transaction, digital transaction, so digital money for for a product. And there's quite a few competing theories about what it was. No one's quite tracked it down. But one of the leading ones is that in 1971 and 1972, the first trans- so between that time, um, a first transaction was made. And it was between students at Stanford University and MIT, and they were selling weed to each other. Cool. So the first transaction really? potentially was a drug deal. Yeah. Sorry, I just said cool, like uh, wanting to be cool. Groovy. (laughs) Cool, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. Like an eighth. Yeah. Mm. Got one in my bag right now. Because there was a lady earlier who'd ordered something by telephone, but that didn't count because she paid in cash when it was delivered to her door. Um, Uh. She predates that, but this is the first digital money transaction. Mm. Very cool. I don't think it is cool. It's not cool. (laughs) As a cop, I can confirm it's not cool. Just (laughs) I'm going to put my cop's hat on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Two of you are wearing hats right now. Dan and James are wearing their hats yeah, right now. Yeah, it's a new thing. We're very in... different kinds of hat. We are. You're I'm... from different eras. <laughs> <laughs> by judging by the hats, we're I'm sure, not going to say. We're not even going to say what the hats are. We're just going <laughs> to let you. If you send a drawing in of the hats you think Dan and James are wearing at the moment, whoever gets closest will win a small prize. <laughs> <laughs> send them to Andrew Hunter Murray. <laughs> <at. laughs> Where did um, you even get a tricorn? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? I don't really think that Ku Klux Klan hat is very appropriate. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Hope you take that off before you go to the soft play area. <laughs> I found sort of a precursor to the World Wide Web, or in fact Wikipedia, which was the Mundanium, which I can't believe I've never read about. <laughs> But this was a thing that was created in 1910, and it was after this initiative from 1895 of two Belgian lawyers called Paul Ocklet and Henri Lafontaine, and they wanted to create what they called a world palace, basically all the world's knowledge and information. They wanted to catalogue it, and so they started doing this, and it was in the Palais Mondial, so the Palace of the World, I think, in Brussels, and they got up to 12 million index cards. So as a sort of side effect of this, no. he also invented the index no. <laughs> Yeah, um, And 12 wow. million index cards wow. full of information. Million. And it was sitting there in Brussels for decades, and then, of so course... So it's yeah. just in a big room. Yep. And there's loads of filing cabinets with index cards, which has all the information of the world in. Yeah. Wow. It's impressive, isn't it? Just two of them. Probably had a few secretaries, but... 
That's amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. Is it still around? Is it still accessible? Irritatingly, and I know they always ruin everything, but in 1940, the Nazis rocked up and the Third Reich <sighs> replaced it with a bunch of Third Reich art. And some of it was left over, but most of it we don't know where it's gone. Oh. Yeah. I know that Those was bastards. <laughs> it's always the response of the Nazis doing something, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God. Fuck's sake. I'm going to stop going to that child's play area in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> On his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Dan's the one in the hood. (laughs) Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the first known use of the word bellend to refer to a person was for the entire 1992 West Bromwich Albion football team. Amazing. (laughs) I mean, what a fact. Yeah. What a fact. What a bunch of bellends. So the word bellend, um, the first, or one of the first uses was the flared end of a trumpet or other wind instrument uh, opposite to the mouthpiece. And that's from 1826. Mm -hmm. And then in 1819, it meant the enclosed extension from the main living space of a tent, especially one with a rounded shape. That was in 1819, did you say? Uh, That was in 1919. Sorry if I said 18. And then 1961, it became referring to the penis. Mm-hmm. And then in 1992, someone was on a Usenet news group on the 28th of September and said, perhaps you are referring to that infamous collection of bellends known as WBA, Win Bugger All. Nice. Ah. And they were insulting West Brom. But it was a bit harsh because I looked at their results around this time <laughs> and there had been nine games that season and they'd won seven drawn one and lost one and they got promoted at the end of the season oh wow what so... a bunch of bellas <laughs> interesting fact the man who wrote that comment was Tim Berners-Lee <laughs> the whole reason he'd invented the World Wide Web uh, wow. there you go it Amazing. is a very uh, it's a very British insult isn't it I don't Definitely. think it gets used in America yeah. no no no, no, I shouldn't think so. No. It had synonyms. So when it became used for the end of the penis in 1961, as you said, in the Dictionary of Slang and Unconventional English, then it was synonymous with blunt end and red end, which have fallen out of use, but we could bring back. Blunt end. Mm. What, blunt a, end. what a bunch of blunt ends. But you don't have a sharp end at the other end of the penis. Well, maybe you should see someone about that. <laughs> I don't have two ends. <laughs> oh, you really should see someone about that. Um, there's only one other word in the Oxford English Dictionary um, whose first citation uh, references West Bromwich Albion Football Club, <laughs> wow. and that is the word marksman, referring to someone who scores lots of goals wow. in a football team. Yeah. Um, it says West Bromwich Albion are largely relying on James Cookson, the marksman of Chesterfield. Mm. There you go. That is great. Who knew they were such a hotbed of neologisms? It's true West because Bromwich-Albion. I looked at Birmingham City Football <laughs> Club and Aston Villa Football Club, yeah. uh, who are both similar local teams, and they don't have a single one. Wow. Yeah. So West Brom are the Shakespeare of our time, aren't they? <laughs> uh, one, one insult uh, that is in the Oxford English Dictionary uh, that has a fantastic uh, reference or citation of, of quote is um, dickweed. Okay. And 
dickweed is a word that got popularized in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, yeah. So they use a quote from that movie in the Oxford mm. English Dictionary. Um, and it's a word that I grew up with because I, I, I love that movie and used to, be, used to call people a dickweed. But I didn't know what dickweed actually meant. And it's pubic hair. I just had I'd not put that connection oh, yeah. together. I'd never thought of Do that. Do you think it's play on the word duckweed? Which is like a type of plant you get in a pond. Is it? Oh, okay. No, do you think it is? I don't think he was stating that it was, and <laughs> yes. I doubt that they'd thought about it to that extent. Oh, I reckon it might be, though, because it's, re- it's not a common word, but it's reasonably common. Oh, yeah. you duckweed, you yeah. dickweed. Yeah, I no. think that's plausible. I'm not saying it's totally impossible. I just think it's one of those unknowables. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll never know. There'll never be a smoking gun on this. <laughs> no. um, Bell End is also a village, and that is, coincidentally, only 10 miles from West Bromwich Albion's football ground. And I think, as far as I can tell, that West Bromwich Albion is the closest English football team to the village of Bell End. No way! I believe That's awesome. so. That is insane. It's close, but it, I think it is. That's much better than my two-hour journey from Kettering to <laughs> Sheffield. <laughs> I wonder if the person who knows... I wonder if the person who wrote that comment online in 1992 knows that they have, are the first use of a word recorded in a language. No, and of, mm. of course, I'm, it's hard to imagine that he made it up, right? right. I th- it feels like lots of people are saying it, but it's just the first written yeah. down. Because, yeah. 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 you know, there weren't many... It wasn't mentioned in newspapers much. No, yeah. but it might have been in private correspondence. Maybe in Churchill's letters he writes to someone else. <laughs> yes. Hedder is such a bellend. <laughs> I can't believe what they did to the mundanium. Um, Michael Flatley fits into the bellend story as well. well and I think obviously. we might have mentioned this in the book of the, the first ever book of the year. Okay, can oh, you yeah. explain who he is for oh, the uninitiated? I'm so sorry, Michael Flatley, the father of river dance, Irish dance. Not the father, one of its descendants. But he's an Irish <laughs> dancer and performer. And, you know, the big thing where they line up and they dance he's very famous for that they call him lord of the dance and he said in 20 late 2016 that he would perform at donald trump's inauguration Oh. And as a result of that, someone redirected the website colossalbellend.com so that when you type that in, it went to Michael Flatley's website. Yeah. 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 That's very good. But it's amazing. Bell was used to mean penis in 1593. Yes. That's the first use of bell to mean penis, and that's from Jonathan Green's Dictionary of Slang, and it refers to a young man wagging his bauble and ringing his bell, and it's clearly a knob gag. Mm. Um, and yet it took so long... For us to really embrace it. Well, just for Bell to become Bell End and then for that to become a personal personal thing. That was in um, a, what sounds like a great book called The Passionate Maurice. (laughs) 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 That sounds like someone's pen pal. (laughs) (laughs) Love The Passionate Maurice. I'm waggling my bauble as I think of you. (laughs) God, I'm not sure what sort of pen pals you had in Styles. Mine were considerably tamer stuff. <laughs> um, but he got pickpocketed in the story as he was doing that. So let this be a lesson to all men. What? It was what? he fancied this woman in the story. I assume the character, the passionate Maurice. Yeah. And he said he was very pleased by her, and he showed this with wagging his bauble and ringing his bell while she picked his pocket and cut his purse. So if you will get your willy out and start publicly wanking, you will be pickpocketed. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Is the moral of that story? What a bold time to pickpocket someone. (laughs) You'd be king of the pickpocketers. I suppose if you've taken your trousers off to waggle it, then actually it is easier to pickpocket someone, isn't it? I don't think you'd fully... I I think it's a weird... 
I think it's a weird fashion who fully takes off their trousers, <laughs> folds them up, and puts them on a nearby seat on the train. <laughs> Flashes are a weird bunch altogether. Yeah, I'm not saying they're not. Yeah. I'm just saying that would require a very organised flashing <laughs> mentality. Um, uh, we're going to have to wrap up shortly. Yep, just a couple of older bits of insult. Um, yep. This is from a classical dictionary of the vulgar tongue, which was published in 1785, and you can get it online. And some really good ones I like in there are, um, what, to be dicked in the knob? Is... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need to tell us what that it's, means. Just, that could mean anything, couldn't it? It just means silly. Guys, it just means you're a silly Billy. Silly dicked Billy. in the knob. Dicked in the knob. Is a knob meaning head? Yeah. Yes, believe so. And dicky, as in something's gone wrong. Um, you could also say that somebody is Captain Queer Nabs, and that's oh, yeah. if they are an ill-dressed or shabby fellow. Oh. Okay. Or if, if you're, this isn't really an insult, it's just if you're surprised or confounded, you are betwattled. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. We should bring that back. Yeah. We definitely should. Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, James at James Harkin, and Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. That's right, or you can go to our group account, which is at No Such Thing, or our website, No Such Thing as a Fish.com. Do check it out. There's plenty of stuff up there from all of our previous episodes to upcoming tour dates. And that's it. Okay, we'll see you again next week. Goodbye. <laughs>